Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Core. I'm also the host of the Popular Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to ask him about the recent Supreme Court ruling on abortion and guns and follow up from last month's Diving Deep podcast on the cost of drugs. Robbie, you wrote an article for Forbes titled, The U.S. Supreme Court is Unscientific, Medically Negligent. What made you decide to write it? Jeremy, I wrote the Forbes article in response to two Supreme Court rulings within 24 hours of each other, one likely eliminating a woman's right to abortion in half of the states, and the other making it easier for people in New York to carry a concealed weapon. It struck me that in reaching these conclusions, the majority of justices failed to consider the research in both of these areas on the likely impact that their decisions would have on people's lives. And as a physician, I worried about the thousands of avoidable deaths that will result. I found ignoring these facts to be unscientific and as a result, medically negligent. Of course, I wasn't the first person to criticize the court for its rulings, but I thought it would improve the dialogue if I could bring a physician's perspective into the conversation, something no one else had done. And so far, the response has been spirited and positive. I know that these two Supreme Court rulings have elicited strong reactions from both supporters and critics across the United States. What have been some of the criticisms? Jeremy, one criticism about the two decisions has been around what people have seen as inconsistency. In the overturning of Roe, commentators have pointed out that the court ruled states should have the final word as to whether women had to carry a fetus to term, while in the gun case, they concluded that New York State couldn't impose an added restriction on a person who wanted to carry a concealed weapon. What's another criticism that opponents have made about these two rulings? The second criticism, Jeremy, relates to the principle of stare decisis, the idea that radical change by the court, particularly as it happens in a political context, is bad for the country. Critics of the court's action point out that when precedent isn't adhered to, people can't make important decisions in a variety of areas, knowing that the rules could suddenly and radically change as soon as the next election was held. They say that the rulings in Dobbs, which overturned Roe and 50 years of precedent, was an abuse of power, and note that the newest justices had promised in their confirmation hearings and private conversations with senators not to do that. Of course, there's nothing in the Constitution that requires them to take a more scientific approach. But I believe that when anyone, including Supreme Court justices, ignore facts that they are being unscientific and that ultimately that inflicts harm. In these cases, the result will be the death of thousands of individuals, which is why I added the word medically negligent. 
You know, Jeremy, when we see a person drowning in a pond, there's nothing that legally binds us to take action. When we choose not to do so, it says much about us as individuals. There's nothing that constitutionally mandates the justices to consider the likely consequences of the decisions before making them. But not doing so, I think it implies that they don't really care as much as I think they should about the harm that will happen. The excuse that no one can be sure what states will do, that's blatantly false. Many already had trigger laws in place that would go into effect that day and either dramatically reduce a woman's right to make the decision about what was best for her and her family or eliminate it completely, even in cases of rape and incest. And there are so many medical issues that now will have to be addressed. Everything from women who want to get pregnant using IVF and doctors being afraid what will happen if one of the embryos has been discarded, that they could be taken to court for having committed murder, and even taking care of women who have ectopic pregnancies that will never go to term and could threaten their lives, giving them the medications needed to save the woman's life could throw the doctor in jail. I just think this huge leap without having considered all of the consequences is going to create more chaos and more problems than anyone has yet realized, at least from a non-medical perspective. What do the defenders of the decision say? Jeremy, they make two points in the defense. The first is that the Supreme Court isn't obliged to consider science or medical practice. And as we've said, technically, they are correct. But that also doesn't mean that they can't consider it. They in no way are prohibited from doing so. And second, the defenders say that some court rulings are wrong and they don't deserve deference even if these rulings have stood for decades. And to support this argument, they point to the fact that longstanding precedent was also discarded in Brown versus the Board of Education, a landmark decision that they segregated schools in 1954. As an historian, you're well aware that that ruling overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the infamous separate but equal decision that was in place from 1896 and had stood for nearly 60 years. And how do these two cases relate to your view of the court as unscientific? Although the court indeed discarded the legal principle of stare decisis in both reversals, both from Plessy to Brown and Rhoda Dobbs, there's a critical difference, I think, between the two decisions. The decision in Brown rested on decades of scientific progress, whereas the reversal of Roe swept decades of science under the rug. Let me explain. You know, back in the 19th century, 1896, some of the world's leading academics believed that black people were biologically inferior to whites. This misbelief we now label scientific racism, but it seemed reasonable, plausible to a court in 19th century America. And it played in the minds of many individuals commenting upon the case, a major part in the Plessy ruling. 60 years later, by the 1950s, the application of scientific scrutiny had helped our nation and SCOTUS to realize that this assumption wasn't accurate and that racialized pseudoscience would harm 
and was harming both child education and American society. When Chief Justice Earl Warren delivered the opinion of a unanimous court in Brown, scholars noted, quote, he based much of his opinion on information from social science studies rather than court precedent. In other words, the ruling in Brown that black individuals were not in any way different than white individuals and that as a result, integration, not separate but equal, was the optimal approach, put the facts ahead of dogmatic belief and personal biases. And what about the recent Dobbs ruling on abortion? You know, Jeremy, in this case, rather than including or at least acknowledging the relevant facts around the harm of the ruling, five of the nine justices did the opposite. They were aware of the scientific rationale used in Roe and Casey, a subsequent case in 1992 that affirmed the prior decision and the constitutionally protected right to the health and well-being of the mother. But they chose to ignore the data anyway. And that, by definition, is unscientific. When you choose not to include facts, when you ignore them, that's what I mean by scientific. I don't mean in the laboratory or some other way done only by PhDs. It's just a process of analysis that before you reach a final conclusion, you have to at least consider all of the elements and acknowledge the ones that might be contrary to your final conclusion. The majority of justices chose to interpret the US Constitution through the words of its authors at the time it was written. Although the judicial philosophy that is called originalism has legal precedent, it ignores 235 years of facts and research data. As you're aware, the Constitution was written in 1787 at a time when the average life expectancy was 38 years, at a time when married women were considered property of their husbands with no legal identity and rights. And at the time, the most popular gun in the market had a magazine capacity of one, and it took approximately three minutes to reload. Since the justices failed to consider the decision, the changes in the world, that to me again is unscientific. And my observation of history is that when that occurs, harm is inflicted. Now, nearly two and a half centuries since the Constitution was drafted, we have far greater scientific understanding than our forefathers had or could even imagine. You know, life expectancy now is 79 years, doubling our distant ancestors. Women are no longer deemed property or second-class citizens. That leap forward in law and logic, to me, should logically afford women vastly more rights today than they had 235 years ago, including the rights to privacy, self-determination, and equality. And whereas yesterday's guns took minutes to load, today's high-powered weapons can end multiple lives in seconds, has been tragically time and again seen, including last week's 4th of July shooting in Highland Park. 
Viewing the Constitution through an 18th century lens seems to me to be myopic, even if it's legal. If as a nation, Americans wouldn't choose to return to the era of the past, why would we base our laws on a literal interpretation from that time, except perhaps as a means to justify a preconceived opinion? Can you expand some more on your concerns, Robbie? Sure, I mean, our lives today are so much better than two centuries ago, thanks to scientific advance. We can cure disease, access limitless medical information with a tap of the finger, and proactively sidestep deadly medical risks. We should be embracing these successes and building upon centuries of scientific progress rather than trying to push American society backwards. You know, I'll challenge you as an historian to identify a time when those in power denied science and replaced it with belief and dogma to find a time that was positive as a result of that and didn't lead to harm and loss of life. I can't. As you're aware, centuries ago, the Inquisition cast Western Europe into an age of ignorance and regression. Science, medicine, and other academic pursuits were censored or rejected by tribunal courts and replaced with the rule of faith. That resulted in deaths of tens of thousands of people over a span of 200 years. Throughout history, unnecessary deaths have resulted whenever science is denied and ignored, and I don't think that today will be an exception. In the Dobbs case, dissenting Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan touched on the court's deviation from science. In their opinion, they wrote, no recent developments in either law or fact have eroded or cast doubt on the original rulings in Roe. Instead, they argued the court reverses course today for one reason and one reason only, because the composition of this court has changed. Can you provide some of the scientific facts you think the judges should have considered when it comes to guns? Last year, guns killed over 45,000 Americans. That's 14% higher than the year before and 43% higher than a decade ago. Since 2014, the United States has experienced more than 3,600 mass shootings. The United States is home to 10 times more gun-related deaths than the next four richest countries combined. Shootings have become the leading cause of death among children, killing more kids than cancer. Guns are now the most common way that people take their lives. And in cases of domestic violence, the chances of a woman being murdered as a result of there being a gun in the home is six times higher than when there is not a gun in the home, leading to 4,000 intimate partner murders annually, most often when women plan to leave abusive relationships. Now, I don't want any listeners to misinterpret what I'm saying. All these facts don't mean that I believe that guns should be banned. But what I would hope is that the justices would focus on both the right to own one and the limitations that come from that privilege. Ignoring the risks intrinsic in carrying a weapon, to me, is unscientific. In medicine, prevention is as important as intervention. When it comes to gun safety, the same should be true. As a doctor, I think that the legal framework needs to protect the rights of gun owners, but it also needs to protect the rights of the people around them. I've taken out far too many bullets from innocent individuals who were shot as a result of simply walking around town 
to not have a strong emotional response. I recognize that we have to include the rights of those to own the gun. But as I said before, we have to also be cognizant of the rights of individuals to be able to walk around their homes, to go to Independence Day parades, to attend elementary school without worrying whether someone would take their life or that of their children. You mentioned the issue of suicide. How do you see the relationship between mental health issues and gun violence? Jeremy, as you pointed out on multiple of our shows, the issues of mental health and gun violence are intimately connected. There's no question that a gun is far more dangerous in the hands of someone experiencing a mental health crisis. And there is a common theme among the perpetrators of violence and mass shootings. When you look at the events in the elementary school in Texas, or the one at the 4th of July massacre in Illinois. And that is that the perpetrators were men between 18 and 21, individuals who were isolated without a support system. Vivek Murthy is the former Surgeon General and he's written about the threat of social isolation. And it's easy to imagine how frustrating it could be to watch the world moving past you. You're done with high school and you didn't go to college. You're isolated, you're alone. You don't have easy access to people your age. You don't see a bright future ahead and inflicting violence on others can feel like a way to deal with your pain. And that's the challenge. You know, it's not against the law to be isolated and there's no way to figure out who in this circumstance will use an assault rifle to take the lives of dozens of innocent people or young children. We know that the individuals sprayed more than 70 rounds into the parade with the high-powered rifle, that he had purchased five such weapons, despite the police having been called to his home twice in 2019 with threats of violence and suicide. Again, as a physician, I think there's just something very wrong when that happens. If listeners doubt them, just ask the victims who survived or the parents of the kids who died in Texas while attending elementary school. Balancing rights is a fundamental part of a society and democracy. The framers of the Constitution did their best to address the issue in the context of 1787. Applying a strict interpretation to those words in the context of today's world will invariably harm thousands of innocent people. Ignoring the facts that exist is both unscientific and medically negligent. How do you apply the same thinking to your thoughts on reproductive rights? Jeremy, when the United States legalized abortion for all women in 1973, the justices did so with the knowledge that restrictive laws don't eliminate abortions. Doing so just makes it likely that women will have unsafe abortions, killing many of them, especially lower income individuals who don't have the ability to travel to a state where abortions are legal. Healthcare professionals know that nearly every death and injury that results from an unsafe abortion is avoidable when the procedure is performed by a trained doctor. And when states restrict access, injury and death will ensue. The majority of women having abortions today already have families and children. They just can't afford to have another child without compromising the health and well being of the ones for whom they already are responsible. The idea that the justices couldn't predict what states would do 
Again, I think it's blatantly false. Trigger laws were already in place in dozens of states, and others had announced plans to move forward. And yet the court didn't consider this reality. Refusing to do so is not just unscientific, it leads to harm, regardless of whether the perpetrator is a nurse, doctor, or Supreme Court justice. Let's move on to the second topic, Robbie. Many listeners told us that they enjoyed the last Diving Deep episode on why drug manufacturers fail to develop and bring game-changing medications to the market. They asked if you would delve deeper into the issue of how drug companies price new medications and what can be done to make them more affordable. Price escalation is the name of the game for drug manufacturers today. From 2008 to 2021, the price of prescription medications has increased 20% per year. By contrast, the rate of overall inflation for that same period ranged from 0.2% to 6.7%. Of course, it's not uncommon for companies in every industry to try to raise prices and maximize profits, but no other industry has done it as consistently or effectively or with such negative impact on human life as the pharmaceutical sector. Has this strategy been very successful? Jeremy, in the past two years, nearly half of all new drugs have had an initial price of $150,000 or more. Profit-wise, one research group found that biopharmacal companies have earned an average gross profit margin of 77% for the past 18 years. That's 39% higher than the rest of the S&P 500. All in, the 35 largest drug companies earned a cumulative revenue of $11.5 trillion over that period. Many companies would like to be able to raise their prices at these rates and generate massive profits. How does the drug industry get away with it? The approach the drug industry uses involves four related but separate tactics. The first one is to promote new high-priced drugs directly to patients. If you watch live TV, you've seen scores of ads. The top three companies have spent $60 million in combined advertising last year. And drug manufacturers also invest lavishly in patient advocacy groups where they promote the brand their medications to members in efforts to get them to demand these expensive medications, even when there's other far less expensive ones that are equally effective. What's a second tactic? Rather than investing in R&D to create entire new classes of dramatically better medications, they take established drugs and make minor changes to their structure, but then they price them many times higher than the previous one and promote them extensively to patients. In the early 1920s, type 1 diabetes was a death sentence for individuals whose bodies couldn't produce enough insulin. A group of Canadian researchers discovered a way to extract insulin from the pancreas and then purify it, giving people with this disease a way to regulate their blood glucose levels. By the late 1970s, Genentech had invented a laboratory process to manufacture rather than extract insulin. And a trio of drug companies took over the market. Rather than creating truly new medications, they continue to make minor adjustments to the insulin molecule and sell the medications as new, high-priced, patent-protected brand-name drugs. Although it costs these companies an estimated $10 to produce a vial of the particular type of insulin, they charge between $334 and $1,000, according to a 2020 Kaiser Family Foundation report. 
You know, that's more than triple what insulin cost a decade ago. And then there are other companies that don't even bother to modify existing drugs. Instead, they just acquire the rights to sell them. And then they raise the price three to five times without making significantly additional R&D. Gilead's $11 billion purchase of Sovaldi. It's an effective hepatitis C medication that was created by a company called Pharmacet. This is a classic example. Following the acquisition, Gilead raised the price to $1,000 a pill. Pharmacet had planned that a course of treatment would cost $33,000. Now it was $100,000. And it generated over $10 billion in sales in its first year. What's another way that drug companies are able to keep their prices so exorbitantly high? Jeremy, a third tactic the industry uses is to exert undue influence over U.S. drug policy. Since the 2020 election cycle, U.S. drug manufacturers have contributed more than $115 million to politicians and spent another $756 million on lobbying. Their money has effectively protected their interests. Although eight in 10 Americans say drug prices are unreasonably high, Congress has consistently voted to extend generous patents and provide protection for drug makers. How does this added influence impact the profitability of drug companies? Unlike in other industries, when pharmaceutical companies are given prolonged patent protection, they can charge almost anything they want. You know, imagine if electric or gas companies could charge whatever they wanted for their services. In the midst of winter in Iowa where you are, they might double or triple what people have to pay. And people wouldn't have any choice but to say yes, at least until they became bankrupt. That's why for these vital life-saving products, whether they're heating oil or, or electricity, companies are regulated as utilities. But when it comes to a drug like insulin, the ne necessity to make it affordable becomes even greater, but there's no regulation. And the drug industry does everything possible to keep it that way. Today's laws give drug companies 12 years of market exclusivity for high-priced biological medications, including gene therapies, vaccines, and other complex compounds, and 20 years of total patent protection. But that's not the ceiling. That's the floor for patents. The ceiling is much higher because drug companies aggressively use existing laws to prolong patents. The 12 top-selling medications in the United States have an average of 71 patents each, providing 38 years of added monopolistic market control. What's more, Congress has prohibited the federal government from negotiating lower prices on behalf of Medicare and Medicaid patients, forcing Americans to pay twice as much for the same drugs as people in other countries. This prohibition is currently under congressional discussion. We'll see if anything changes in the near future. What's the fourth way the drug industry generates its huge profitability? You know, Jeremy, eventually even the most generous patent protections come to an end and companies must face the potential for generic competition. That's when major drug companies shift tactics from influencing policy to crushing the competition. There are a number of legal and semi-legal approaches that drug companies use to game the system and maintain market control. One is called pay for delay, a deal in which drug companies agree not to compete for a certain amount of time in return, obviously, for a significant amount of dollars. This keeps genetic medications off the shelf 
and keeps prices high for brand name drugs. According to an FTC study, these anti-competitive deals cost taxpayers $3.5 billion in higher drug costs every year. Another competition crushing approach is called the authorized copycat. By law, the first generic to market is given six months of exclusivity. This was created to encourage new generic companies to provide these medications at a much lower cost. However, what's happening now is that just before the patent expires, the companies already selling the brand name drugs sell the same medication under a different name and they charge the same high price as they would for their brand medication. As a result, they maintain high, huge profitability without additional R&D for another half year. And perhaps the most brazen approach is what's called stonewalling. That is that biological drug companies keep monopolistic market control by refusing to cooperate with generic manufacturers. For a generic manufacturer to gain approval for these large molecule drugs that are very complex, they must prove to the FDA that the medication works similar to the brand name version. And to do that, they have to complete clinical trials with half of the recipients taking the current biological and the other half taking the biosimilar. When brand name manufacturers refuse to give these generic companies samples of the medication, the testing and FDA approval can be delayed for years. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. What can patients do to overcome the growing unaffordability of drugs? Unfortunately, Jeremy, outside of requesting and buying generics, whenever applicable, there's little the average person can do to bring down exorbitant drug prices. American laws have long tilted in the drug company's favor. and There's no sign that will change. Unfortunately, major improvements will require congressional action, something that is exceedingly difficult to achieve today. To break the drug industry's unwritten rules on pricing, lawmakers must pass policies that voters can rally behind. Can you give three examples of what Congress could do? Jeremy, here are three things that Congress could do that I believe would be extremely beneficial. First, they could require manufacturers to justify prices. Once drug companies are given monopolistic patent control, they aren't required to prove that the price they're charging makes logical sense for our nation. Congress could require pharma companies to validate prices either by demonstrating a medication's efficacy or by tying the maximum price to the R&D dollars spent. Second, they could eliminate some of these patent loopholes. As a condition for granting a patent, Congress could more tightly regulate the duration of market exclusivity, and they could prohibit brand drug manufacturers from taking advantage of the six-month protection window granted to first generic to market companies. When it comes to a life-preserving drug like insulin, the government could aggressively go after companies that act in ways designed to keep expensive, equally effective drugs out of the US once the initial patent has expired. And finally, as I mentioned, we should let the US government negotiate Medicare drug prices. They pay for the medications. Our senior citizens deserve it. In a global economy, forcing our nation to pay double what other countries do harms our businesses and negatively impacts the health of our citizens. Robbie, any final thoughts? 
Jeremy, the drug industry deserves kudos for helping to have increased life expectancy greatly over the past 50 years. You know, my grandfather died of a heart attack before age 60, but thanks to a variety of medications to control blood pressure, reduce elevated blood lipids, maintain normal blood sugars, his descendants have a life expectancy well past 80. But the current unwritten rules of drug development and pricing have led to few advances over the past two decades, with life expectancy for Americans minimally different now than they were 20 years ago. Many factors, including diet and lack of exercise, have contributed, but the paucity of breakthrough new medications is a significant part of the problem. The drug industry is challenging. With any research endeavor or new medication facing the possibility of being a total bust, as such, pharmaceutical manufacturers deserve a fair deal. But so do the American people. And I don't believe they're getting that today. If drug companies want to be paid handsomely for their blockbuster drugs, they have to accept low dollars for the ones that don't add much value to what already exists. They want to be paid appropriately for the dollars they invest in R&D. They need to forego those dollars when they spend little and even less when they just buy the rights to already developed medications. We live in a global economy, and that means we can't direct high walls to better products at lower prices from other nations. The U.S. has carried the global pharmaceutical industry on its back, with people in other countries paying half as much as Americans today for the same medications. Given the economic challenges and threats our nation faces, the time for change is now. Hopefully, Congress will elevate the needs of the American people above the campaign contributions that come from the drug industry, and hopefully American physicians will do the same when it comes to accepting gifts and other perks from drug companies and their reps. The combination of transparency and pricing and real competition among manufacturers, they offer the opportunity to advance healthcare at a pace we haven't seen for decades. What it will take is for Congress to do its job and for voters and listeners to hold elected officials who don't want to do so to task. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Fixing Healthcare is now a weekly podcast posted each Sunday night. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.